God's way is always to choose the way of the messenger being such an ordinary messenger that no attention is drawn to the messenger. Instead, the attention is given to the God of the message. Is not this the carpenter? Is not this the carpenter? So Matthew tells us that they say, is this not the carpenter's son? So that tells us that both Matt, uh, I'm sorry, both Jesus's father, Joseph, and Jesus were carpenters by trade. So this word carpenter, it's the word tecton, it's the word that we get our word uh, technician from or architect. And literally it just means someone who makes things. So much has been thought about Jesus's occupation, his trade as a carpenter. And we often think of that through the lens of our modern day carpentry, which has to do exclusively with woodworking. But in Jesus's day, a carpenter, literally tecton, just literally somebody who makes something and the things that they make could be anything. It could be anything from a a plow to a yoke for a team of oxen to uh, a ditch to uh, a, a pile of dirt to a building or a structure. Anybody that made something, and it could be made from any sort of material. So it, was, it covered a wide range of things. So Jesus was, was someone who made things, and that doesn't mean in any way that he made important things or big things. He was, just, he was a, a person who worked with his hands to make things. He was a, a tecton or translated carpenter, someone who would make, make something in some way. Now, Today, when we think of those who make things with their hand, who are craftsmen or artisans, we have a certain regard for someone who has the skill to make things, whatever they may be, with their hands. But a couple of things really come to the surface here for us to be careful about. One, the first thing for us to be careful about is this, to not take our modern perception of our culture and our society around us and transport it back to Jesus's culture and to not look at Jesus's culture as though we're looking at it through our own. Because a couple of important differences come into play here. One is that our culture has a basic sort of fundamental respect for those who make things with their hands, especially quality things or things that require skill or a know-how to make. Not so in Jesus' culture. In Jesus' culture, a tecton or one who made things was regarded as just a menial laborer. Now, the Jewish culture didn't disdain menial labor, but neither did they respect it either. So Jesus' occupation, though his type of occupation would have carried with it some degree of respect. Think of maybe somebody that you know who builds houses or someone that you know who, who builds anything with their hands. And with that, if that person is competent in what they do, that, there comes a certain regard for that person. Not so in Jesus' culture. In Jesus' culture, he would have been known as just a menial laborer. Not on the level of a shepherd. We've have, I've often heard how shepherds were sort of the lowest guild, the lowest trade of the society. Not at quite that level, but on down there. So a type of occupation that would in and of itself garner no respect. That was the Jewish culture. 
But remember, Mark is writing not to Jews, he's writing to Roman Christians. And so when we transport that from the Jewish culture, which had a type of respect, at least, for menial labor, they certainly didn't disrespect it. When we go over to the Roman culture, the opposite is true. The Romans had a disdain for anyone who worked with their hands. The Romans had a sharp disregard for anyone who worked in any kind of a physical way. Same thing with the Greeks. The Greeks and the Romans both had a disdain for those who worked with their hands. And so Mark is writing to Roman Christians and is careful to tell them that they say to Jesus, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the one that works with his hands? So that's the first thing to make sure that we understand. Here's the other thing to make sure that we don't import back into the story this this sort of 21st century perception that we have today. And this perception is this. We tend to sort of romanticize people in the past, don't we? we? We have that tendency. We have that tendency to think of people in the past, particularly people who were engaged in lifestyles or occupations that were very menial or very rudimentary or, or close to the earth, so to speak. Don't we have this tendency to sort of romanticize occupations in the past and give to them some sort of a, a modern day notion that didn't really exist in reality in their culture. The best example I can think of is how we today have have reinterpreted the whole Native American culture, the the culture of Aboriginal Americans, Native Americans. We have sort of reinterpreted that as the noble savage, the one who was close to nature, the one who had respect for animal life and respect for the environment around them, right? That is a modern-day notion. That, hold, that cannot hold water against the straightforward, open-eyed view of historical facts. They were people like we were people. And so there, this idea that just because they lived in the past and they lived in ways that were close to nature, that somehow we've romanticized that, that they were so, had some sort of nobility to their character, that, that's, a, that's a modern invention. And we can do the same thing for many people in the past, and we can do it for Jesus. We can take our modern notion of someone who builds things and and works with their hands and we can put into that a, a modern nobility and we can import it right back to Jesus and we can give to Jesus's occupation a respect that Jesus didn't have. We can give to Jesus a respect in his occupation that he didn't want. So this shows up in all kinds of ways, particularly if you watch any of the movie or film adaptations of the Gospels, which I don't recommend that you watch. But if you if you were so often, I have seen Jesus portrayed in his occupational time as something that was so far from reality as as this sort of noble person making these intricate craftsman sorts of things I remember seeing one portray Jesus as making a wooden version of a modern-day door lock that had a, a wooden key that, that moved these little clinkers and, and knocked, and they imported that back into the first century. Nothing of that was anything to do with what Jesus did for a living. Or another one, I'm not making this up, another one I actually portrayed Jesus making this really high-quality, nice-looking chair, I kid you not, 
looked exactly like the Amish made it, like one of the, the nice spindle early American chairs. You know what I'm talking about? Actually pictured Jesus making one of those. The thing was made on a lathe and, and sanded with a belt sander. And Jesus and it's, that is exactly taking our romanticized version of what we view as people, people who are craftsmen today and importing it back. Jesus most likely dug ditches, moved rocks, piled stones, that was, some, that was closer to what Jesus did than this idea of this ancient craftsman who was respected by those around him. Jesus was not respected for what he did, and that's why they draw attention to it. This guy's a carpenter. Now, the third thing to make note of that we can also import back, is, so you see how our, we've, we've got to take the effort and the time to make sure we're not reading the Scriptures with a 21st century bent that causes us to misunderstand the point. So the third thing that we got to make sure we don't import back into the text is our modern day notion that someone can reach down, grab the bootstraps, and pull themselves up and be something else. We have a basic sort of respect for that, don't we? When someone has humble beginnings, when someone has lowly beginnings, and they make something of themselves and they, they climb that social ladder, so to speak. We have a respect for that. In Jesus' day, that didn't exist. There was no changing of social classes. In fact, in Jesus' day, that sort of attitude was viewed not as something respectable or admirable. That was viewed with disdain. Here's someone who thinks that they're better than their place in life. Now, that's a totally foreign concept to the modern-day American. But that's how it was understood in Jesus' culture. Anyone who is just a carpenter who thinks themselves now to be a rabbi, they're not worthy of respect. They're worthy of disdain. So those three things will help us to view this well. This was not some sort of idea of Jesus as a carpenter having respect from those around him. In fact, just the opposite. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? So there's another insult. Jewish custom was to refer, especially if a person was a male, Jewish custom was to refer to every male as the son of their father, not the son of their mother. Isn't that the son, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, many commentators will make note of the fact that probably at this point, Jesus is father by way of marriage to his mother Mary, not his biological father, but Joseph was most likely dead at this point. And that's probably true. And so some commentators will say, well, that's, that's why he was referred to as the son of Mary, because there is no more Joseph. Joseph's not around. And that's just hogwash. Because a man was referred as, to as the son of his father long after his father had died. That was just the accepted, respected way to refer to a male in this culture. And so by saying, isn't this the son of Mary? Here's what they're saying. We're not even sure who his dad was. You see, this is a stab at the supposed illegitimate birth of Jesus. The whole virgin birth thing. This is sort of a stab at that. Like, like what happens in John's gospel when they say to Jesus, or oh, at least we know who our father was. That was a little bit more blatant right there, but this is the same sort of thing. This, this dig at Jesus that, that he doesn't even know who his father was. Who knows who the father of, the, of this man was? Isn't the, so we don't know who the father was, so we just got to say, isn't this the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? 
So his sisters are unnamed. And that most likely means that they were married by this point, because in this culture, once a woman was married, she would then not be named by name, but only referred to as the wife of her husband. That was the way that culture worked. So his Jesus' sisters, of whom there were at least two, probably more, his sisters are most likely married at this point, which doesn't say a whole lot, because that could still have meant that they were 12. But his sisters are, are likely married with us. But he says, they say, isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon and, the, and his sisters who are here with us? Here's another dig. Who are here with us? Meaning they haven't gone off to start some kind of crazy movement. They haven't left home and left their mother and gone off to start some sort of crazy movement and gone off across the Sea of Galilee and these, these crazy adventures into Gentile lands. They're still here with us. Now, this also is speaking to us of something that I think, I think that we can see this. If it's not explicit in the text, we can probably understand that it is implied in any sense that Jesus' brothers, we know that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. That's stated for us explicitly in John chapter 7, verse 5, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And it's also made plain to us in chapter 3 of Mark when his brothers and his mother came to take him home against his will. So they did not believe in him. But when they came to get him in chapter 3 and to take him home, we remember that instance. The whole scenario there was that Jesus was in Capernaum. And you remember the crowds? You remember the attention that Jesus was drawing? And so Jesus was there inside the house, and He has His called out ones around Him, and He's teaching them. And Jesus' family comes, and they come outside because there was too many people they couldn't get inside. And so they send word to Jesus, tell Jesus that we're here for Him. And you remember Jesus' response? My mother and father, my brothers or not my father, my, my, my mother and my brothers and my sisters. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are the ones who hear the word of God and do it. So they receive from Jesus a rebuff. And remember, we talked about all about how inside and the outside, the contrast right there. But they received this rebuff from Jesus and they couldn't do anything about it because they were in Capernaum. That was Jesus's backyard, so to speak. The crowds were huge. The enthusiasm was enormous. He was inside with his called out disciples. And so this rebuff from Jesus, all they could really do was go home. But now they're in Nazareth. And so we can imagine what has happened when they got back, when they got back home from Capernaum. I can imagine that they've spread the word that they have told those in Nazareth there, remember it's less than 500 people, they've told those people in Nazareth who are their good family friends, you know, my older brother, he's sort of gone off the deep end. It's sad. It's sad. He's gone off. He, he's teaching these crazy things. We tried to help him. We, we went to get him and bring him, and he wouldn't come. He, he even said that, the mother, that, that Mary's not his mother anymore. He even said we're not his brothers anymore, that his new brothers are this, this new brotherhood of his teaching and all these sorts of crazy things. Can't you hear how they would have stirred up animosity against Jesus? How they would have poisoned the well against Jesus and invoked even greater disbelief? Now, as Jesus returns here to Nazareth, this is what he's meeting. Just by the way, later on, we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, as the early church as the called out ones, the disciples are there in the upper room awaiting the coming of the Spirit. We're told that in that room, Luke tells us, were his brothers, Mary and his brothers. And the way, the way that Luke phrases that, 
leads us to believe that Luke means all of his brothers. We know that certainly James, Jesus' half-brother, goes on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the first martyr. So we know that at least belief and regeneration and, and conversion come to them later. But for now, they are steeped in their unbelief and they most likely have, as I said, poisoned the well here in Nazareth against Jesus. And so, surprise, surprise, they took offense of him. They took offense of him. Now, in modern day vernacular, that would be he got above his raisin. He's done gotten above his raising. Or sometimes you hear words like this. He's gotten all uppity. You know what that means? He's gotten all uppity. That means there's somebody from a humble beginning, from a from a roots sort of beginning that now has gone on to something else in life. And now they think that they're better than what they came from. They've gotten all uppity. They, they've gotten above their raisin, so to speak. So in a strange sort of way, it's almost like Nazareth is confirming the words of Nathanael in John chapter 1, verse 46. When, John, when Nathanael says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's almost like they're confirming that. Oh, he's from Nazareth. He can't be this rabbi sort of thing. He's just from Nazareth. So notice here the change in, in scenes. Notice the change in context. Jesus now takes us from a context in which there is the context of true and genuine faith. Those four episodes, those, those three miracle stories, those four episodes where each one of those took place in the context of true and genuine faith. The disciples in the boat, their faith was small and weak, but it was faith. The, the Gerasene demoniac, he didn't have faith in Jesus as he was possessed of the demons of legion. But when Jesus cast them out, he then clearly became a person of faith because he then expresses his love for Jesus and his desire to go with Jesus. Then, of course, there's the, the, the two miracles of the woman with the flow of blood and Jairus' daughter. Clearly, four stories of faith contrasted against such a story of unfaith, such a story of disbelief. So they took offense at him. The word there is scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal from. And literally, scandalon just means stumbling block or to put something in someone's way that'll make them trip. That's what a scandalon was. If somebody was walking and you know the old trick that everybody does in elementary school where you stick out your foot to trip, that's a scandalon when you put something to trip somebody up. And so this stumbling block, this offense is what Jesus is now called. They, they, they took offense at him. Eight times in Mark's gospel, he'll use this word. And all eight times he uses it the same way, which is to say some sort of objection to faith, something that's brought up that restrains faith, that, that does not, that, that prevents belief. So all this, once again, is preparing us for the next story. The disciples, they'll be sent out and they will be scandalon. And then, of course, John the baptizer. He will be scandalon because he will be killed. And then all this, of course, is preparing us for the ultimate scandalon, the ultimate scandal, which is Jesus and the cross. <music> 